And every time we had a strike, uh, we had no electricity, no running water, no heating, sometimes for several days afterwards. And this became a, a, an everyday reality in Ukraine. And I think it just shows the power of civil society. It's played an incredible role in Ukraine to date. It's playing an incredible role during the war relief efforts, and it's going to play a huge role in reconstructing Ukraine after the war is over. A huge part of my time now is you know, working with Rotary, particularly in Lviv and the rest of Ukraine and the rest of the world, really. We're doing whatever we can to get humanitarian aid both into the country, but also distributed around the country to where it's needed most. Welcome to the podcast of Rotary Magazine, the official publication of Rotary International. I'm Steve Edwards. As the war in Ukraine nears its one-year anniversary, peace remains elusive. There's no let-up in Russia's bombardment. And as of mid-January, nearly 8 million refugees from Ukraine have fled to other European nations. Nearly 6 million people, most women and girls, are internally displaced. Russia's escalating missile attacks on critical infrastructure and civilian targets in Ukraine have caused massive destruction and death that's left millions of people without reliable access to electricity, heat, and water in the harsh winter. Over the past year, Rotary has raised $15 million to support humanitarian projects in Ukraine. Last month, the Rotary Foundation trustees decided to create a new targeted fund to provide life-saving aid to people who've been affected. In this episode, we investigate the situation in Ukraine, explore the prospect of peace, and discuss the importance of civil society in Ukraine's post-war future. We speak with award-winning Ukrainian novelist Andrei Kirkov, who has just arrived in London after spending most of the past year in Ukraine. There, he documented the resilience of ordinary Ukrainians in the face of wartime suffering. Later in the program, we'll talk with Boris Bodnar, a Rotary member in Ukraine's western city of Lviv. Bodnar shares a detailed account of how the global Rotary network has enabled swift humanitarian relief. But first we talk with John Huco about how growing up as a Ukrainian American shaped his life and how his experience living and working in Russia and Ukraine have informed his views of what's happening there today. John Huco is the General Secretary and Chief Executive Officer of Rotary International and the Rotary Foundation. Earlier in his career, he was an international partner with the law firm of Baker and McKinsey, where he served as managing partner of its offices in Kiev and Prague, and advised on the initial draft of the Ukrainian Constitution in 1992. John, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us. You know, it's interesting, in your speeches and interviews, you frequently talk about your father, Lou Huco, who fled Ukraine during World War II. I'm curious, how did your father's story shape your own identity as well as your perceptions of Ukraine? Well, Steve, thank you so much for that question. My parents are from Western Ukraine, part of Poland prior to the Second World War, between the First and Second World War. And then in 1943, as the, the Soviet army started moving west, Western Ukraine was very anti-communist. Certainly all the intelligentsia and, and people who were anti-communists fled, and that included my grandparents and parents. And so they, they fled west. They weren't married at the time. They wound up meeting later in Detroit. 
in the United States, but they fled west. And when the war ended, they were in southern Germany and then spent four years in uh, what were called displaced persons camps. My father was in a camp near Mittenwald, south of Munich. And then in 1949, they were fortunate enough to be able to come to the United States. And their life had a tremendous impact on me and on my siblings. Uh, Whenever you're a child of political refugees, and that's what they were, that obviously influences what you hear, the stories you hear. Uh, my childhood and that of my siblings was, you know, stories of the war and fleeing and losing everything, coming to a new country with nothing, literally nothing, having to start from scratch, learning language. And so all that, I think, certainly gave me a real appreciation for, in my view, the, the horrors of communism and the communist system, and also imbued in me a real passion for Ukraine and its culture, because In the Soviet Union, there was an attempt to consciously stamp out Ukrainian language and culture. And so the Ukrainians in the diaspora, especially those that came to the United States after the Second World War, they in many ways felt we are the the guardians of language and culture. And so I grew up speaking Ukrainian at home, uh, Ukrainian Saturday school, etc. So for me, it gave me a unique sense of Ukraine, its history, but also great appreciation for the country that accepted them with such open arms and gave them and me and and our families such opportunity. Along the way, your father also became a Rotarian. Why did your father join Rotary? My father personally was involved in many civic organizations, but particularly he really enjoyed his Rotary experience. He was a Rotarian for over 30 years. And when Ukraine became independent, his club in Clarkston, Michigan, was one of six clubs that sponsored the creation of the first Rotary Club in Kiev in Ukraine after the fall of the Soviet Union. And I was working in Ukraine at that time as legal advisor in the Ukrainian parliament. So my father asked, hey, could you give us a hand in trying to set up this club since I was on the ground? And so I did, and I was proud to be a charter member of that club when it was formed in 1992, and was also able to help my father organize a number of significant humanitarian projects to Ukraine through his club, through his district, and with the other sponsoring clubs. So it was really my father who brought Rotary to me, and I'm very glad that he did. He was also responsible for me finding out about the job of being a general secretary, but that's another story. I want to talk a little bit more about your time in Eastern Europe in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union. I understand that you moved to Moscow as a newlywed. How did that experience inform your perceptions of what's happening in Russia today? I met my wife, Marga, who's from Argentina in in Washington, and we were married in mid-December in Santa Fe, Argentina. And just prior to that, I had accepted a position to move to Moscow, the firm of Baker McKenzie, which was the, the first Western law firm that was accredited in the former Soviet Union, and it was still the Soviet Union. We shut down our operations in the United States. Everything we owned was in 17 boxes. We flew, I think it was on Pan Am to Moscow, and then spent the next literally three years living both in Moscow and then in Ukraine in a hotel room. I like to say that Marga is probably the first and I'm sure the last Argentine to have taken her honeymoon in Moscow in early January. And it was an extraordinarily interesting time because it was perestroika. There was an opening. Obviously, our firm was able to open our office there, but it was still the Soviet Union. And so I was very glad that for at least two years or almost two years, I was able to, to experience what it was like living and working in that Soviet system. It wasn't easy. There weren't very many restaurants at the time. For Marga, it was 
Uh, I really give her a tremendous amount of credit. It was not easy at all. We had to cook dinner on a hot plate, wash the dishes in the bathtub. It was sort of, uh, you know, camping 101 in a Soviet hotel room. But it gave me a great appreciation for what life had been under the Soviet system. As a lawyer, it couldn't have been any more interesting, sort of blazing a trail, trying to operate Western legal principles in a country which was still, the legal system was still largely Soviet, and to play a part in really the evolution and development of the legal system there. Andy Warhol is credited with saying that in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. You've referenced your own 15 minutes of fame before. What's the story? Uh, my 15 minutes came in August of 1991. As I had mentioned earlier, I had moved to Ukraine in the spring of 1991 from Moscow, and I had taken a leave of absence from the law firm I was working with, Baker and McKenzie, to work for a year as a as a legal advisor in the Ukrainian parliament funded by George Soros. And then, if you recall, the coup happened in August 1991, and all these different communiques were being issued by the, the junta that carried out the coup. I went immediately to the parliament building and spent the, the first three days of the coup outside of Leonid Krochuk's office. He was the head of the parliament at the time, eventually became Ukraine's first president after independence, and really had an inside view in terms of what was happening at that time. Then two days later, 21st, if I'm not mistaken, Boris Yeltsin gets on the tank in front of the White House in Moscow. The coup's over. And and so in Ukraine, the, the question then was, how is Ukraine going to react to the events that were occurring in Moscow? And the Ukrainian parliament was out of session. Uh, so they called parliament back for the 24th, the day before the parliament was supposed to meet. The democratic opposition, which had about 25% of the deputies in the Ukrainian parliament at the time, the other 75% were, were the communists, uh, met to try to determine what they were going to do the next day. And a big debate broke out between two factions, one that said, let's go for independence tomorrow. And another said, we don't want to be independent in a country that's led by the communists, because an independent Ukraine would still be led by the communists. Let's first deal with the communist issue and then go for independence a little bit later. And for me, this is sort of like being in, in Philadelphia on July 3rd, 1776 and hearing Mattis and Franklin and Jefferson all talking about what they were going to try to do the next day. Well, as the evening went on, they eventually decided, let's go for independence tomorrow. And so they began drafting a whole series of decrees, de-communizing this, uh, nationalizing Communist Party property, et cetera, et cetera. And they came up with a more than a dozen decrees that they wanted to be voted on the next day. And as they were working on it, one of the deputies comes up to me and says, John, we have a problem. And I said, what is it? He said, we have no way of photocopying these decrees. And I said, well, just go to the secretariat. They have a copy machine. And they said, we can't go to the secretariat because the communists control the secretariat. They'll never let us photocopy these things. And I had, by chance, a small Canon PC7 copy machine. And Marga had just brought a box of A4 paper from Baker McKenzie's office in Moscow. And so I said, give me all these decrees. And with a student from the university, we sat up all night and made 450 copies of all these decrees. Now, we didn't have enough paper to do one page per decree, so we had to put four on, on a page. Next morning, I show up, I hand the box of these decrees to the deputy head of the opposition, to the Democratic faction. The communists freak out, where did all this come from? And six hours later, Ukraine declared independence. And for me to be in the gallery, to see that happen was just incredible. But also to realize that perhaps that was my 15 minutes of fame and that I'm sure Ukraine would have probably declared independence without that. But who knows? And I was glad to play a small part in that moment to help Ukraine take that historic step and become an independent country. 
<laughs> I, I hope you kept uh, one of those 450 copies for yourself. John, after Ukraine gained independence, what other role, if any, did you play in further establishing the new country? As you know, Ukraine became independent in August of 1991. And so after December, then Ukraine is now a country. And it then needed to embark on the journey of drafting new legislation and coming up with a new constitution. That year, I was still working in the parliament. And so I put together a group of uh, Western constitutional experts from around the world. All this was being funded by George Soros. And I took this group to Prague in the spring of 1992. We locked ourselves in a conference room for, I think it was three or four days and hammered out the initial draft of the Ukrainian constitution. I was there to sort of facilitate and help. I'm a lawyer, but not a constitutional expert, but I was there to facilitate and help. And it was just great to see all these experts sitting around developing with their Ukrainian colleagues an initial draft of the constitution. The constitution, which was ultimately adopted several years later, was somewhat different. That version was viewed as the Prague version, and it was very, very progressive, probably too progressive for Ukraine at that time coming out of that post-Soviet legacy. So the, ultimately the constitution, which was adopted several years later, was different. But this was the first crack at it. I have a copy of that signed by all the members of the Ukrainian Constitutional Committee. And uh, it's a very nice memento for me to have, and again, to have a bird's eye view of the development of, of Ukraine as a country. John Huco is the CEO of Evanston, Illinois-based Rotary International. He's been a public policy scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Hugo has published papers and articles in leading U.S. and international publications, and he's spoken extensively about political and business issues dealing with the former Soviet Union, Central Europe, Africa, and Latin America. Andrei Kirkov is a Ukrainian author and public intellectual one of Ukraine's best-known novelists. He lived in Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv the day after Russia invaded his country on February 24, 2022. He received a phone call from an old friend. That friend notified him that he was on the Kremlin's blacklist because of his past criticism of Vladimir Putin. His friend warned that if Russian forces seized Kyiv, his safety could be jeopardized. Kirkov and his wife, an English expat, collected a few essentials and joined the millions of Ukrainians who've been forced to flee. In his latest book, Diary of an Invasion, Kirkov documents in vivid literary style how his life very painfully changed in the early days of the invasion. I recently spoke with Kirkov and John Huko about the situation in Ukraine. What impact are these most recent attacks having on the shape of the war and on the attitudes of Ukrainians that, that you're speaking with? Well, I was actually in Kyiv under the drone attacks during the missile strikes. And every time we had a strike, we had no electricity, no running water, no heating, sometimes for several days afterwards. And this became a, an everyday reality in Ukraine. It doesn't make people depressed. I mean, probably somebody is depressed, but usually it makes people angry, more angry. And actually, I mean, even in the New Year Eve at midnight, Russia was shelling Ukraine with Iranian drones. I'm very happy that all the drones were shut down by the anti-air raid the missiles. But people are defined. People are defined. And actually, on the 31st of December, 
all the theater performances and concert halls were full. So you're talking about the impact of these drone attacks and missile strikes as strengthening Ukrainian resolve, strengthening the defiance of the people in the face of those attacks. What impact, however, is the devastation on the infrastructure having just on daily life as it plays out for Ukrainians as they, they try to go about the business of staying safe and living their lives? Well, I mean, people are used to spend hours in corridors and uh, in the bomb shelters, and we spent half of the night on the 1st of January in our corridor. So, I mean, nobody complains. People are trying to adapt, uh, even adapt their businesses to this new reality. So the hottest thing to buy now in Ukraine is an electric generator. And you have generators on the street outside of pharmacies and cafes and restaurants. So, I mean, this is the reality. What is interesting that actually the refugees, Ukrainian refugees who are abroad, they are, I think, much more affected by the new strikes against Ukrainian cities because, I mean, they are afraid for their loved ones who remained in, in Ukraine. And those who remain in Ukraine, they are almost used to this reality. I mean, some people are becoming a bit more fatalistic. I mean, some people are tired to run to the bomb shelters, but uh, others became much more disciplined. John, we hear Andre talking about uh, the reactions within the country, the impact on daily life, and then also that comparison to how uh, Ukrainians are feeling who are living outside of Ukraine right now. What's been your reaction to watching this play out from afar? Well, first, uh, probably similar to what most people are feeling in the civilized world, just horror to see this incredible destruction and terror that completely unprovoked that uh, that Putin has unleashed against Ukraine. You know, Andre mentioned the the kind of the devastation and the the, the kind of the, the the daily struggles that Ukrainians are going through, but I do think there is a, a in somewhat paradoxically a silver lining for Ukraine in all of this is it, it, you know, this has really in my view been sort of the penultimate step in creating a truly unified Ukrainian nation. As Andre mentioned the pride in being Ukrainian uh, the growth in the use of the Ukrainian language in all parts of Ukraine, not just in, you know, Western Ukraine, Central Ukraine, and in Eastern Ukraine as well. And, and it's really, it's, you know, in some ways, everything has backfired on Putin. If his goal was to sort of bring Ukraine to heal, the exact opposite had happened. If his goal was to destroy Ukrainian culture and language and national identity, the exact opposite has happened. And from the perspective of someone who grew up in the West, and who had to spend most of my life explaining to people that Ukraine is not Russia, the Soviet Union is not synonymous with Russia. Point out where Ukraine even is on the map. The whole world now knows about Ukraine. Zelensky has now become probably one of the most best-known figures in the world today, period. So I think from my perspective, as terrible as this war has been, the enormous human suffering that it has caused, it has really accelerated and jolted forward the creation of a, a unified Ukrainian nation. A lot of challenges still ahead of Ukraine. We can get into that a little bit later if you'd like, Steve. But I think it's, it's heartwarming in a sense to see that now I don't ever have to explain to anyone, where is Ukraine? What is Ukraine? And it's put Ukraine on the map and the ingenuity of the Ukrainians and their fortitude and their resilience has really been admirable to watch. Andre, I want to come to you to pick up on the point that John was just making as it relates to the sense of Ukrainian identity, 
and the sense of the relationship between Russian identity and Ukrainian identity. You were born in what is now St. Petersburg, what was then Leningrad, grew up in Kiev, but your native language is Russian. You've spent your career, most of your career, writing in Russian. So how do you think about that interplay and this sense of connection to Russian identity and Ukrainian identity now? Uh, thank you. It's quite a tricky question, but I will try to answer it. Because, I mean, not many people in the world understand the difference between Russian and Ukrainian mentality. Ukrainians were always individualists, and Russians were always collective people. They were monarchists. I mean, they needed a Tsar to love or to kill and then to love the next Tsar. In Ukraine, there is a tradition, old tradition, to have no respect for political power. Uh, and, and so every Ukrainian has his own opinion about everything. And every Ukrainian has in his head his own image of ideal Ukraine, where he would like to live. All Russians have the same image of great Russia. So this is the main difference. And if I speak Moldovan or Russian, or even I speak uh, Armenian, but I live in Ukraine and I'm citizen of Ukraine, I have Ukrainian mentality. I want my opinion to be heard and respected, and I'm anti-collective. Uh, and actually, I want also to state that the first victims of this war were Russian speakers in Ukraine, although Putin said that he is coming with the army to save Russian speakers from Ukrainian nations, but most of Russian speakers in Ukraine are Ukrainian patriots and are pro-European individualists who don't want to have anything to do with collective Russia, with collective Putin. And so, I mean, I studied Ukrainian when I was 14, still in the Soviet school. And I worked as an editor in Ukrainian state publishing house. I was editing translations from foreign languages into Ukrainian. So, I mean, my love and my respect for Ukrainian language doesn't clash with my uh, Russian origin. So, so, I mean, from foreign languages into Ukrainian. So, so, actually, my Russian languages is not a marker of my political attitude or my cultural affiliation. You know, it's it's fascinating to hear you talk about your own personal history and the way in which culture and language play out in terms of Ukrainian identity. Later this spring, your new book, Diary of an Invasion, will be published in the United States. And I'm wondering if, if there's a story or an anecdote of an individual or a community of people that you chronicle in the book that, that speaks to that sense of resolve or spirit or strengthening of civil society that you, that you might be interested in sharing that, that stays with you from from your writings? Well, in this book, there are lots of stories which happened to me, to my family, and to my friends. And actually, in the very beginning of the war, on 27th, I think, of February, we were stuck in the Carpathian Mountains uh, in the car because, I mean, I was in the beginning of the war with my wife in Kiev, my three kids with their friends were in Lviv. And on the second day of the war, we started with the car going to Lviv to pick them up, and it took uh, 22 hours to get to Lviv. But then we wanted to go to the Hungarian border, to Transcarpathia. And when we stuck in Carpathian Mountains, in the traffic jam that was 50 miles long, and it was 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, minus 10 Celsius. So, I mean, you don't have enough petrol. If you run petrol to keep warm, you will not have petrol to get further. And suddenly, actually, you understand that everybody is prepared to help everybody else. And uh, I found a man, uh, Just a, I got a phone number of a man who lived in a village not far away from the place where we were stuck. And I found out that he bought 
a, a Soviet-built hostel, which was half ruined somewhere in the, uh, another village, but not far away. So I called him and asked if it is possible to stay a night in his place. And he came to pick us and to show us the way to this hostel. And then he returned to the traffic jam and he brought to this hostel 20 more cars with families. And so, I mean, like 50 people suddenly had almost for free possibility to, to sleep the night because many people who were driving cars, they were driving from Dnipro, from Kharkiv for three, for four days without rest. And I mean, this kind of openness and readiness to help, it, it was on, the, on every step. I mean, one week later, an old lady, a retired lady who never met us, but she is a relative of somebody who knows me. She gave us the key from her flat and she moved in with her daughter and daughter's family. So we stayed in her flat for several months afterwards. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's, it's an example, I think, of the kinds of stories that have really captivated the world, the sources of, of inspiration and resilience. John, to come back to you for a second, though, you said a minute ago that the way this war has played out has backfired on Putin, that Putin's goal was to, in many respects, reconstitute the Soviet Union and to bring Ukraine firmly and directly under Russian control and to push away the prospects of deeper ties with the West, most notably ties to the EU and to NATO. If a Western-aligned Ukraine is an existential threat to Russia from Putin's point of view, does this mean that he doubles down even more on everything that he has already started with the invasion a year ago? Yeah, I think Putin, in a, in a way, has really backed himself into a corner because I think his very regime now is at at stake. He has to lose the war, and I think he will lose this war. I think you're going to see, you know, tremendous, uh, tremendous turmoil and chaos within Russia. As Andre very well knows, Russia itself is a confederation. It's the Russian Federation. It's a multi-ethnic state with a lot of internal tensions kind of uh, built into it. So I think Putin's kind of walked out on on the ledge. He's jumped off the cliff, and he's hoping his parachute uh, will open. But I did want to pick up on on an earlier point that, that Andre made in terms of the, 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 the growth of Ukraine as a nation, as a people. And it's sort if we look back over the last 30 years as you know we had the independence in 91 where the overwhelming majority of ukrainians in the referendum of december of 91 voted for independence including crimea slightly above 50 percent over the last 30 years we've seen that consolidation of ukraine independence then as andre mentioned the orange revolution in 2004 maidan in 13 14 and now you have this war further led to that consolidation but i do think there is one and i'd be interested in getting andre's take on this there's one additional step that I think Ukraine needs to take after they win this war to really consolidate not only nationhood, but to truly become a Western country, for lack of a better word. And that is that even prior to the war, the systemic issues of corruption, lack of rule of law, all of that was still there. Ukraine hadn't quite tackled that fully, it got much better from the days of Kuchma and all of that. But there were still some significant underlying issues, oligarchs running the economy, etc., etc., I would suggest that when the war ends and these billions and billions of dollars of reconstruction money will be coming into Ukraine, that we really use that as leverage to, to really to try to force through at working with the Ukrainians to put in place these really fundamental changes that need to happen for Ukraine to truly take that final, in my view, last step of consolidating itself as a Western for lack of a better word, country. And here I think is where EU accession is extremely important because that will become an additional stimulus for Ukraine to undertake these much, much needed reforms. But very interesting to hear your take, Andre, on the sort of post-war Ukraine because that that in some ways is, is as important as winning this war. 
Well, I mean, if we are talking about post-war, I mean, I probably I, w- I would first start with the pre-escalation, pre-February situation in Ukraine, because at that time we got the civil society, which turned out to be much stronger and more effective than political elite. And then, I mean, Ukraine is a young country, and actually this is the young part of the generation of Ukrainians who went as volunteers at once on the 24th of February to the front lines. So, I mean, I'm very hopeful, and I, I'm quite happy with the anti-oligarch law that was signed before the escalation by Zelensky. You don't feel presence of oligarchs now in politics. It doesn't mean that they don't exist. They can come back. They can buy their ways back. But I hope, actually, it won't happen because, I mean, people are used now not to see the presence of oligarchs. John, from your perspective, President Volodymyr Zelensky was in Washington at the end of 2021, speaking to a joint session of Congress. He's been meeting with French President um, Emmanuel Macron, Indian Prime Minister Modi. He's released a 10-point plan for peace that was rejected by Vladimir Putin immediately. But what are your thoughts on the efforts toward peace versus what you were saying before? And are they at conflict necessarily with one another? Well, I think, you know, there's zero chance that politically that uh, Zelensky or any Ukrainian leader at this point can talk about territorial concessions, right? I mean, the society is overwhelmingly in favor of of winning this war. The question is, what do we mean by victory? And is it back to the borders that were there from February 23rd? Or is it going all the way back to pre-Maidan, let's say? And, you know, I suspect within Ukraine, there's there's going to be a sort of a huge debate over what the definition of, of victory is. But regardless of which of those two scenarios one looks at, Ukraine needs to, at least in my view, push Russia back to the February 23rd border. And this is where Western support is absolutely critical, that Western unity needs to be maintained. I don't know, Andre, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Ukraine is not going to invade Moscow. The Ukraine is not actually trying to get Russian territories. Ukraine wants uh, its territories back. And of course, after this, potentially negotiations are possible, but obviously not with Putin, who will not agree to any kind of negotiations leading actually to his political defeat in his own country. So, Andre, if I hear you right, you're, you're essentially saying that there can be no permanent peace with Putin in power in Russia. Is that the bottom line? Well, I, I hope that actually the lack of advances of Russian army will create internal pressure in the military circles in Moscow. And there will be probably more and more opposition to Putin, maybe not vocal, but there will be some kind of sabotage, quiet sabotage or quiet disagreement, which would uh, lead to not fulfilling Putin's orders, because he will be probably taken as a less and less adequate politician by his own political elite, because, I mean, they are younger than him, they are maybe healthier than him, they, they might survive him physically. But then they, they understand that they will keep a responsibility for these war crimes. I mean, whoever lives longer, it uh, doesn't mean that he will live happier. John, what's your thought about what the future holds in the near term? Well, I think for me, it's about continued Western support. Obviously, without Western support, Ukraine has no chance of winning this war. And some of the things that Andre just talked about are, are very real. But for me, it comes down to maintaining Western unity to support Ukraine, because that's really the key. The Ukrainians themselves, they're going to fight to the end. Morale is extremely high. All of Ukraine is united. I agree 100%, 200%. As we near the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we do so entering the depths of winter, 
Uh, we do so with the impact on Ukrainian infrastructure, not to mention the loss of lives that this war has inflicted on thousands of people in, in both countries. So, John, from your perspective, what are the biggest and most pressing humanitarian needs right now, and how is Rotary playing a role in that? Well, you know, earlier in the interview, Andre mentioned the importance of civil society in Ukraine. And, and certainly, if you compare civil society in Russia, which is basically non-existent now, to society in Ukraine, it's like night and day. And that's one of the hallmarks of Ukraine. Um, civil society is today playing an extremely important role in dealing with some of the humanitarian catastrophes that are happening. And they're going to play a huge role, as Andre mentioned earlier as well, post-war, in terms of holding politicians' feet to the fire, demanding reform, demanding that corruption be rooted out, etc., etc., etc. So with respect to the war, I'm extraordinarily proud of Rotary. Shortly after the war started, we put together a Ukrainian disaster relief fund in our Rotary Foundation. Within a matter of weeks, we raised $15 million from Rotarians around the world. An outpouring of support we haven't seen ever, I think, in our history for a single cause. And uh, our Rotarians in Ukraine, we have about 1,200 Rotarians in Ukraine, 60-some clubs, sprang into action and have made a tremendous difference in the, in their various communities. And I think if there's ever an example of, of the impact Rotary is having is that our membership has actually increased in Ukraine since the, the start of the war. And, and our Ukrainians, the Rotarians, many of whom have lost their homes, have had to flee, have lost their businesses, continue to work to help Ukraine. And so we've provided ambulances, fire trucks, medical equipment, uh, you, you name it, shelter, food. And it's not just the Rotarians in, in Ukraine, uh, in the neighboring countries, Baltics, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, Romania, Moldova, extraordinary outpouring of support for the Ukrainian refugees and throughout Europe, the United States as well. And that's just the 15 million we received in the Rotary Foundation. There's also, we're hearing anecdotally of tremendous amounts of in-kind and cash contributions going directly from Rotary clubs and districts to Ukraine. So I would suspect we've probably provided somewhere between 30 to $40 million worth of relief aid to Ukraine since the war started. And not just Rotary. I mean, there's been literally hundreds and hundreds of nonprofits, both Ukrainian-based and outside the country that have stepped up and are helping Ukraine. And I think it just shows the power of civil society and the importance that civil society has in societies, not only in terms of driving change within society, but in stepping up and fulfilling needs at a time when when government structures are in trouble and getting destroyed and bombed, etc. Well, you also, Andre, described yourself as a pathological optimist in an article that was uh, in the New Yorker magazine. So does that still hold, I take it? Yeah, but I hope I don't sound pathological when I'm talking <laughs> about the future. <laughs> Andre Kirkov is the author of more than 20 books, including the best-selling novel Death and the Penguin. His work has been translated into 41 languages and published in more than 60 countries. His latest book, Diary of an Invasion, will be published in the United States in April. Andre and John, thank you both so much, and we wish you all the best. Boris Bodnar is a businessman and a member of Rotary Club of Ukraine Unity Passport. He was born and raised in the United Kingdom, where his parents settled after fleeing Ukraine during World War II. After spending much of his own life and career in the UK, Bodnar moved to Lviv four years ago. When the war began, Bodnar and his fellow Rotary members in Ukraine formed a crisis committee to assist refugees who were fleeing cities under attack. They helped them bring in supplies donated by Rotary clubs around the world. They distributed them to the areas of greatest need. The war has disrupted Bodnar's own business, 
For now, Rotary has become his 24-7 job. Boris, thanks so much for talking with us. You are currently living in Lviv, and we're curious, perhaps you could tell us just a little bit more about the city that you now call home. How would you characterize it? Lviv is a beautiful city. It's it's not beautiful in the, in the sense that it's you know it's perfect in every way. It's rather shabby in a lot of ways, but it has a lot of beautiful architecture. It has a lot of very ugly architecture, but it has a an ambiance to it that um, that really draws you in. It's friendly. There is a, a huge cafe culture. You know, based on the fact that uh, it's probably Lviv is probably the coffee capital of Europe. There's always something amazing going on. There's an amazing jazz festival that happens in Lviv every year. You know, uh, when one thing stops, then something else. There's great street life in the centre of town. And it's a, it's a really buzzing place, and a very safe place. How has your life changed since the invasion? What impact has it had on not only the city in which you reside, but the rhythm of your day and, and the way in which you are engaging the world? It, it became very clear very early on where the invasion was biting the most. Lots of infrastructure problems were occurring, and one of those was um, access to clean drinking water, where water supply infrastructure had been damaged or destroyed. People were finding themselves in very difficult situations with no access to, you know, running water. And uh, you know, as somebody said to me very early on, you can live without gas, electricity, but if you don't have water to drink, then you just die. A friend of ours, who is now a member of my club from southeast of England, came over and brought me a packet of water purification tablets and said, look, I don't know what the situation is like in Lviv, but, you know, just in case you need something to help you have drinking water, then here's a, here's something for you. And in, within about a month, we were bringing over hundreds of thousands of these tablets and distributing them all around the country. And I, just before this uh, call, I had a, a call with a rotary charitable company in England called Aquabox, that have been supplying us with small-scale filters that can help families or smaller groups of people, or even uh, community filters that are, are really useful for hospitals and, and larger communities. And that continues. What are the biggest needs facing Ukrainians now, in addition to water? Keeping warm. One of the things that we've also initiated and we're doing now, there's a lorry coming over from England carrying around about £20,000 worth of thermal underwear, for example. That's very important. The difficulties with the electricity infrastructure means that, you know, we have periodic power cuts, scheduled power cuts, which, you know, can be very difficult in some circumstances. Personal circumstances, it's difficult to live without power, but also in social environments, in medical centers. So backup generators are very important. We have a rotary project in a village called Moshtum near Kiev, which was you know, destroyed to the extent of something like 70-80%. Rotary, together with local organizations, are um, erecting temporary housing. They were designed with heating that's electricity-based, which means that it's a bit of a problem. What we're trying to do now is bring in as many generators as possible so that each unit can have its own generator to make sure that people can live in these temporary units and be warm during the winter. You know, Boris, we have many people, many Rotarians, in fact, listening to this podcast now. So what would you like to say to them and, and what can they do to assist in this effort to help the people of Ukraine? 
Well, the, the most important thing is, is communication and engagement. We're available 24-7 to understand what it is that people want to do. We work on a premise that everybody has a desire to help, but not everybody really knows what to do. As I, I often say to people, I can help you to help us if I can understand what it is that you, you're able to do or that you want to do. What are your resources and how can we potentially combine your resources with resources of your uh, local other clubs or your district or not just your district as i mentioned earlier how can we connect uh, you know a, a district in california for example with a district in germany uh, where we have a for example have a very strong relationship now and we meet every week and they've provided so many supplies they've funded a number of ambulances uh, they've done fundraising in the in the US. They've transferred to uh, to Germany, and they've therefore been able to provide supplies down to Mikolaev, which has you know been suffering very heavily. So it, it's about engagement and, and communication. Boris, you moved from the UK to Ukraine, what four years ago, something like that. Yeah. Then the COVID pandemic breaks out, and then last year Russia invades your country. Do you ever regret? Making the move? No. no. Why not? I don't feel guilty for it either. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> look, the, the point is that sometimes you strongly believe in things and you make a point of it, or sometimes it's just there. I mean, there is a reason why I'm here, which isn't about me planning to be here. When I came here in 1990, I realized the dream that I'd had growing up as a young person in England, in the Ukrainian community, to Ukrainian parents who'd had families who'd suffered at the hands of uh, both or various people who had occupied Ukraine in the past. Uh, being here, knowing what I know now and being active in what I'm doing now, I realised that there is a reason why I'm here. And I, I have absolutely no regrets. And where at the beginning of the war, I had so many calls from people, friends from various countries saying, look, you know, you should get out Come, come and stay with us whenever. It's not even a question for me. Well, Boris, we wish you all the best for, for safety and success in your efforts and all the humanitarian relief that you are leading in Ukraine. We thank you so much for this conversation as well and hope we can chat again soon. Great. Thank you, Steve. Boris Bodnar is the Charter President and Executive Director of Rotary Club of Ukraine Unity as an international business consultant. He's currently based in Lviv. Special thanks to our guests, John Huko, Andrei Kirkov, and Boris Bodnar. If you'd like to contribute to the Rotary Foundation's Ukraine Response Fund, visit rotary.org donate. This episode of the Rotary Magazine podcast is produced by Kristen Morris and edited by Johanna Zorn and Wen Wong, with production by Mike Novak. Audio production assistance was provided by Alex Eric Hannon. I'm Steve Edwards. Thanks for listening.